Welcome to Enemies of the People. A podcast about extremism in the 21st century. Hello, frenemies, it's me, Maria Norris, and welcome to episode 24 of Enemies of the People. Now, before I say anything else, I need to say thank you. I am absolutely blown away. Just last week, I made an appeal on the podcast to raise enough funds for us to enter the British Podcast Awards, and I was hoping we could raise the £120 fee we needed by the April deadline, and we've matched it already. You've done it. Thank you all so much, and especially to the one very generous drop. And especially to the one very generous donor, Gavrosh. Is your name a Les Miserables reference, by the way? Well, because of you and all of you, we can enter the competition and easily cover our costs for the next month as well. So really, thank you so much. Thank you for believing in me and in this show. Today we are talking with journalist Mick Wright. I'm a big fan of Mick's newsletter on media criticism. It is called Conquest of the Useless. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while or you follow me on social media, you know that I am a very proud media studies graduate and that I get really annoyed when people dunk on media studies. So it was with absolute pleasure that I spoke with Mick about the war on media studies and the deeply unhealthy state of the British media. So now, without further ado, here is Mick. I'm Mick Wright. I'm a I'm a journalist and a writer, and I I write a media criticism uh, newsletter called Conquest of the Useless. That is straight to my first question: is how did you decide to start writing a newsletter on media criticism? Because I've been doing it for by you know I've been a journalist since. 2005 I worked in all sorts of bits of journalism I started out in trade journalism because it was the only job that would pay me a decent amount of money to to live when I first started and then I worked through magazines and then I worked for some national newspapers and I I, you know I, I got a pretty broad view of how journalism in the UK particularly works but you know a good sense of journalism generally there's a lot of um commonalities particularly between the US and the UK in terms of how journalism works although you know some clear differences as well and I guess over time I just started to feel that there were some fundamental problems with the industry and with how it functions particularly particularly the UK and particularly the way that comment journalism drives a lot of UK journalism and I wanted to write about it. And I think you you've touched the nail on hit the nail on the head there because I was going to ask in particular about how and where did the line between commenta- commentary and journalism between you know common pieces and actual hard news where did that get blurred? Well, it's a tricky one because I honestly don't think there's ever been a time where those lines haven't been blurred. I think it's it's more clear now, but I think that there's a kind of if you go back through the history of of journalism, you look and, and you see that those that that line is you know that line has been kind of a, a wavy line o- over time. It changes um, and and shifts back and forth over time. I think that you know early very early examples of newspapers, the, the line doesn't exist at all, right? And then there's a kind of a period. I guess there's this post-war, post sort of. Second World War period where there's this belief that 
there is this line, this division, and, and maybe that people start to study journalism and the way the media functions and sort of tell themselves that that, that the distinction is there. If you look back and you start, if you pick through news stories even now, what is seen as a neutral voice is very rarely a neutral voice. In fact, it's impossible to have a neutral voice, right? So a lot of the notions of how, of, of journalism as an impartial thing, I think that there's no such thing as impartial journalism. I think there's only only honest journalism. You know where the bi- where where you uh, admit and accept and are open about your biases and open about the perspective that you come to any particular thing. I'm very suspicious when people, you know, talk about well, I'm a news journalist and I'm completely unbiased. It's like well, that's that that cannot be true. You know, that's not true. That's a, a philosophical impossibility. Yeah. In academia as well. I mean, I'm an academic and I'm always incredibly suspicious of people who say, you know, it's this is a neutral piece of work or you have to be neutral or objective in your profession. And it's exactly as you said, there is a difference between being neutral and being honest. And what we strive, at least for the those in academia that subscribe to this belief, is that um, you're just open about where your biases are. You state very clearly what your position is on an issue and then you you write the paper based on on that it's i think that the pretense of neutrality is extremely damaging yeah exactly that and i think i think it's something that uh, really affects journalism because i think journalism is quite in thrall to a number of you know myths that journalists like to think of about themselves like speaking truth to power is like you know something that you see journalists talk a lot about speaking truth to power but the number of journalists that actually do that or the number of bits of journalism that actually do that is vanishingly small I think and you know when you encounter them they stand out but it's very difficult as an individual within a within a structure to speak truth to power because power ultimately you know (laughs) you, you are an individual and your ability to speak truth is very curtailed by that but there's a lack of honesty about that. I also think it's very difficult to speak truth to power if you're funded by the powerful. Yeah, it's because true. Because there is, there is um, a lot of discussion, or there has been for as long as I can remember, and I did my undergraduate many, many years ago in media studies, but and even back then, you know, over a decade ago, people were talking about the the media conglomerates and the Murdoch press, etc. So there's, none of this is actually new. It's Do you think it has gotten worse or has just gotten more apparent? How has it changed? I think in some ways it might be more in some ways it's more transparent now because we have you know we we have many more ways to see you know many more ways to see how these things are produced you know it's harder to hide the it's harder to hide dissenting voices or dissenting voices are have have other ways to to express themselves now but i think the other thing about speaking truth to power is i think about this a lot i have subscribers for this for this newsletter i write and i think often to myself do i not write about certain things because I, as an individual who have some reliance on this audience, am afraid to write cert- to do certain pieces because either they would be less popular or they would get less attention. I mean, for, from my perspective, like my newsletter, it, it does not make huge amounts of money at this point, and I don't feel afraid to write the things I want to write, and hopefully, I continue to have new people subscribe, and and I will never. 
allow someone to say, oh, I, I'm not I'm not going to subscribe. Okay, fair enough. You know, it's like you can't. But it is difficult, I think. I think it is difficult. And in terms of power, it's I think there are also I talk about I feel like I've talked about this a lot, but I feel like there are a lot of sort of hidden or accepted things within like the whole swathe of the British media, for instance, right? Like there's a general acceptance of, for instance, how the housing market works, right? Or or of monarchy, right? Or of, or, or of you know, certain structures of power. They're sort of generally accepted, right? There's no royal correspondents whose job is cover the royals from the perspective of should this institution even exist, for instance, right? Or there is very, or although there is a growing feeling amongst I'd say people from mid forties downwards that, you know, landlord, there's a big problem with landlords in this country and like a rentier economy is a really bad thing. Right. You read the newspapers and generally from, from the the center papers, like the guardian through to like the more right, hard right paper, like the telegraph, there's just this acceptance that people can, that it's like a good and socially okay thing to be a buy to let landlord, for instance. So I think it's kind of interesting. There's this, there are these, sort of rails that everything kind of operates on to a certain extent and notions of like of of military service and the value of military service and stuff like that things that you that that it's it's very much not worth your while to question and you mentioned the monarchy and it was also the subject of one of your latest newsletters what role does the monarchy play in the british press because it is not as you said no royal correspondent is going to question the monarchy so what role do these articles about the monarchy play well, it's like our partially taxpayer-funded Kardashian family, you know. <laughs> but the pro- but the difference between them and the royals is that, regardless of your opinion of them, they have to, you know, they have to make money. They have to, like, you know, uh, g- produce a product and make money from that product, right? And whether people buy it or not. But the, with the royals, it's a product that we're forced to pay for. But w- the way it functions in the media, I think, is it's like celebrity coverage, but it also functions as a kind of um like the queen has been used recently as like you know this this metaphor for how we should all react to covid and how we should just keep working it's like even though it's farcical to suggest that you know what is deemed work done by a 95 year old head of state is the same as someone delivering for uber or having to commute to a very full office like the, the it's 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 ridiculous to make that comparison but the daily mail had that on their you know their front page she's an example to us all so and the monarchy serves a lot of functions but yeah for the media it's a ongoing celebrity story and also yeah a, a means of transmitting tradition i guess what do you think will happen to the british media when the queen dies in the sense of i dread it because i don't think any news is going to make any waves once the queen dies it's just going to be that that's all the coverage oh, well you know there's an, a, 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 a notorious message was sent you know by by a, a labor politician in government at the time of 9-11 who said you know oh today is a good day to bury bad news the yeah. death of the queen will be like weeks upon weeks where it's uh, good to but you know it's a, it's a good uh, time to bury bad news and hide bad news for the british media it'll be the death of Prince Philip was like, you know, a practice run for that. You know, hundreds of pages will be dedicated to her death, hundreds of pages dedicated to her life, you know, souvenir supplements for days and days and days. And it will be a means, you know, it will be a giant manufacturing consent operation. Manufacturing consent. 
I love that word mainly because it throws me back to my time studying media, doing media studies back at uni. And one thing that I wanted to touch on is that when we're talking about manufacturing consent, when we're talking about the media, and I really enjoy the work that you do, but in particular, when you do those breakdowns of front pages of newspapers, when you highlight them with different colors, that's very clear and basic media literacy work, which Mm -hmm. is not something that is encouraged in in Britain. I mean, my experience as someone who has a, a degree in media studies is that that degree is belittled, the concept of having to approach to study media and and approach it from a critical perspective is belittle and joked around and say you know it's not that serious but it's very serious work yeah it was i think i wrote about wrote about this quite a long time ago the war on media studies really got into its into its stride um in in the 90s but more so around the, around the time of um, the Blair government, this notion of you know, it, which is quite interesting because it's it was a government that was extremely focused on media rebuttal. Like one of the things it did in as an opposition party before it came into government was that they you know created a rebuttal unit, a f- rapid rebuttal unit within within the Labour Party to deal with stories in government. You know, one of the key things for Tony Blair's premiership happening was about getting the Murdoch press on side. But what was really interesting is, so they're incredibly media savvy government that understand, you know, and party and operation that understand we, we need to get the media on side. But at the same time, you have politicians consistently during that period talking about like what a Mickey Mouse degree media studies is, how pointless media studies is. And, you know, it sounds conspiratorial to say, but it is very in 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 the interests of a political class to have a non-media literate populace because you because it's not in it's quite useful to have people receive news as they is uh, on face value and not to not to see it in any way you know as as structurally interesting or or to have layers or to see you know trends of language through that it's very useful to just have it go this is the this is the news this is what's happening and that there's no levels to this so of course media studies has been derided for that because it it's it would be very unhelpful if everyone was more media literate God, can you imagine if the British public was actually media literate, the kind of news, news, I'm doing air quotes Well, newspapers wouldn't be able to function as they do now. That's what I was going to say. Can you imagine something like, not even going as extreme, it's talking about the tabloids and the Daily Mails, but even broadsheets, the way that they're formatted, it wouldn't work. But you see also, I think the distinction between, I should write about this, but I think the distinction between tabloids and broadsheets is a is a useful marketing person thing from the past, right? Because actually, the editorial line of the Times and the Sun, if you if you um, strip it down to the skeleton, is is pretty much the same, right? And I I, I look at the and the Daily Mail is a ta- the Daily Mail is a tabloid. Like it, it gets treated as something other than a tabloid, you know, towards like the mid-market paper or whatever, but it's a tabloid. I basically think that there are no British newspapers that are tabloids in sentiment, apart from maybe the Financial Times. And the and the Financial Times is a different beast because it is read by uh those people who need a certain information of a certain with a certain dryness to it because it matters for their stocks right so they'll buy it for that rate and and the financial times better be relatively straight down the line although obviously capitalists and red and tooth and claw the 
FT, but it, it generally presents the world in a fairly straight ahead kind of way because that's what its readers require. But every other paper, The Guardian is not a... The Guardian's not a left-wing paper, and I think the Guardian's te- the Guardian's sentiments towards things are quite populist and tabloid. In the same, you know, I I think the press over the past, you know, 30, 40 years or so has become smaller and smaller and smaller, and and the Overton window that it operates in is like a cat flap at this point. You all need to look at the coverage on anything to do with woke and war and woke, and see that there is quite a common sound you know like a common yeah exactly the way that it's being covered in like you said in in newspapers that you think are so polar opposites like the guardian versus the mail or the guardian versus the telegraph it is quite similar the way they're covering certain issues well it's about yeah because i think they accept it's also very interesting that like well not that interesting but it's it one of the things is that the guardian i think will accept the framing the same framing is accepted in the Guardian as is accepted in the Telegraph or the Times. And then you look at the BBC and the BBC accepts framing of issues from places like the Daily Mail. So like they and and I mean, it's it's sort of like if you look at the British media, it's a little like a football league or something. Any any journalist from any paper can move to any other paper pretty much. Right. You could be at the Guardian and then you could immediately move to the Daily Mail or vice versa. Right. In it, I think in a, in a healthy media eco, media ecosystem, if you were a journalist on a right on a very right wing paper, it shouldn't be possible to move to a paper that's nominally left immediately. There should have to be some sort of transitional stage. Right. You, If you can just particularly as columnists, you know, if you can move, if it's possible to move, say, from the New Statesman to the Daily Mail or vice, uh, vice versa, there's something about that. You've got to say it's interesting. Well, there can't be the plur- plurality of views and, and perspectives that we're told there are, because how would this be possible otherwise? <laughs> Constantly, you know? Yeah, it's quite... The word that I think of is quite incestuous, the relationship between commentators and different newspapers and editors. They move so much. And I would also use the same word incestuous to describe the relationship between the Tory party in particular and the newspapers, because there has been quite a lot of movement from being in the Tory party and then being working for a newspaper and vice versa. I mean, Boris Johnson used to work for for yeah, Boris Johnson is basically the only thing he knows how to do is be a uh, be a comment journalist. He he is a prime minister who who creates his policies, writes his speeches, defines his actions by how would this how would this play in the newspapers? You know, and as much as Dominic Cummings is you know one of the least reliable narrators in British politics, that's probably one of the most clearly obviously true things that he has said which is that this prime minister is you know entirely driven by how will this look in the media you spoke earlier about that you know in a healthy media environment it, it wouldn't be possible to work for the daily mail and then the, the guardian what would in a healthy media environment what would that look like what would a healthy media environment look like in the first place well, I mean, I, I, it's not that you would never be po- possible to, to to have worked for one and then worked for the other, but it would be that there would be, I, I to have a truly healthy media environment would be, say, if you've got five newspapers you you and you looked at the five newspapers, you would see a real distinction in the way they covered, you know, the news agenda, that there was a, that, that they, as it, you, you know, way, way back when, you know, there was a sense that, for instance, the Daily Mirror was a was a like a staunchly left wing paper. But if you read that paper now, 
yeah, okay, it, it, it sort of is a bit more red team than blue team. But if you look at the way it covers news, thinks about the news, thinks about wokeness, you know, as a great example of it, it is, it's as, it's, it's arguably as reactionary as the sun, right? So I, I think a, a healthy environment would show, would, would have a, a breadth of opinion. And it would be an environment where it would be possible to be, to express left-wing opinions as easily is, as it is to express right-wing ones. Now, right-wing commentators will say, oh, we're always being silenced by the left or whatever, but that's completely bad faith. I mean, it, it just is. You know, if you, if you look at the number of commentators who are regularly given platforms on the BBC and who have regular columns, you know, overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly cis, overwhelmingly male overwhelmingly right wing you know the, the the stats are there you can just see that it that that is not healthy because many people are not represented you know even just if you look at it on an age thing newspaper executives constantly talking about how oh we need to get more young people reading and stuff but they have no interest in that really because they're constantly attacking younger people and constantly presenting the world from a you know baby boomer perspective when it comes to to then sticking with this idea of what a healthy media environment would look like, if we were ever able to get to something like it, or at least talking in an ideal type situation, what would then be the relationship between the media and the government? Uh, highly adversarial. And we don't have that. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> not really. What a surprise. But it's like, I, I think that the reality of it, it's more like a... Um, I've used the professional wrestling analogy a lot. And I think it is a bit like professional wrestling. Like you get the appearance of adversarial of an adversarial nature. But I think if you look at the way that particularly political journalists talk about things, they are more able to empathize with and understand politicians than they are the voter. Right. So they always have to come up with ways of understanding the, the voter, like create these, you know, like in the 80s, it was like uh, 80s and 90s, it was the Mondeo man or whatever. They need a kind of a, a, a caricature of what the voter might be. And right now it's the red wall vote. And they send every time there's an election, every time they send people from London up to the north to do these. We're going around the country to find out what people think exercises. And all of that stuff in, just indicates how they're much more comfortable talking about a Westminster world and how the Westminster world works. And they understand those people more. They have parties with those people. They, you know, go to dinner with those people. They are married to those people or they're best friends with those people. And the one I bring up a lot, and it's, I, I suppose it's unfair on him because I always bring him up, but James Forsyth, for instance, went to school with Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, his best friends with Rishi Sunak. He was his best man, but he never mentions this in columns even though he's writing about the government, right? And and he, until his wife resigned from the government, he didn't mention that, you know, Allegra Stratton, his wife, was the, you know, a spokesperson for the prime minister, right? Didn't happen till the week in which she resigned and he had to mention it in Congress. It's impossible to avoid it. The difference between here and the US, in the US, there is more of a culture of declaration of these things, in print at least. Like, if you know, if, I, if I'm a... Uh, if, I, if I'm a hack and I'm married to a, uh, someone who works in politics, I'd have to declare that, you know, very clearly and, any, and I probably wouldn't be able to write about, you know, the same world that my partner is in, which is, you know, I guess that's difficult on a personal level. But right now, in a, a, on a professional one, it's completely screwed up the incestuousness and the lack of declaration. And they would say, oh, yeah, well, people know this. And you go, well, no, not all readers do know this. Not, not all readers does. do know this. No. I mean, how would they know? 
how will they know this if it's not yeah. on the news? That is what I always question. And I went on a nice reminiscing daydream about my favorite um, WWE plot points and adversary <laughs> um, after you mentioned it. But um, speaking of, it's a great analogy. And I think one of the storylines, sticking with this idea of storylines that I think are very successful in the UK, is the idea that the BBC is somehow lefty and somehow yeah. leftist. And that I think has helped to corrode the entire media environment in the UK because the national broadcasting service, the BBC, which is, in my opinion, a deeply conservative um, organization, is portrayed as a lefty organization. Yeah, it's deeply conservative. Its roots are deeply conservative. It's been, it, it's always a, a conser- conservative with a small c in its, in, in it, it, it looks from it always comes from a status quo position. It it, it defends the status quo, uh, but also a lot of it's, it. The the thing that you need to like, which is very hard for people to to come back against, is you look at it and you, big names leave the BBC. Where do they go? <laughs> where do they go? What do they do when they leave? John Humphreys, you know, was was the presenter of the Today program for you know 20, 20 odd years, and the first thing he does when he leaves the corporation is he gets a column in the Daily Mail. Jenny Murray was you know the presenter of Woman's Hour. First thing she does when she leaves the corporation is gets a column in the Daily Mail. They're not getting their columns, you know, in the Guardian, for instance. You know, it's um. Not that I see the Guardians particularly left, but you know, it's, <laughs> but if uh, the, the Daily Mail particularly, it's very interesting, you know. And I always say another thing I say a lot, but I do believe it is that if you look at the editorial agenda of the Daily Mail on any given day, and then you look at the Today program's running order on any given day, there is there there is an incredible you know lockstep between them in terms of what they think is important and how how what is driven is important this no they just aren't the examples of them being wildly left is just they're they're very hard to find i mean recently obviously you know nick robinson joked about gb news's viewing figures right but that's more like internecine you know media jealousy and and nitpicking and infighting it's not really about oh it's because he's desperately uh left wing and also nick Robinson was a, a national was was the um, president of the uh, National uh, Young Conservative Association when he was at school. Right, the notion to me that he he's become super left over time is ludicrous. It's nuts. I mean, another great example of that is Andrew Neil. Yeah, it's just uh, it's incredible that somehow with all of this evidence, the myth persists though that the BBC yeah. is some kind of leftist progressive organisation. Yeah, and, and the BBC is currently led by a former mentor to Rishi Sunak and a do- who donated money to the, you know, £400,000 to the Conservative Party. He's the current, you know, chair of the BBC. And the, and the current director general, Tim Davies, stood as a Conservative Party local council candidate. So it's not, there's no sort of, the leaders, the top leaders are, are from the right, which to be, which... Uh, to be fair, and I don't say this enough, is that, yeah, but when Labour was in power, they made sure that they got people who were politically fairly aligned to them at the top. And that again links back to what we were saying about um, that ideally the relationship between the media and the government would be adversarial, but the way that you stop it from being adversarial is that you appoint your own people to it. Yeah. And it is, we've spoken about this on the podcast with on other topics, such as, um, for example, immigration and Labour's record on immigration versus Conservatives' record on immigration, is that it is not just a Tory party issue. It is a uh, 
government issue that has been ongoing for decades. And we're just seeing the latest iteration of it. And I think it's a particularly insidious and nasty iteration of it. But it didn't start with David Cameron becoming prime minister. No, it's a, it's a, for want of a better word, it's an establishment issue. And I think you can see it in things like, you know, Alistair Campbell presenting Good Morning Britain and being constantly on as a t- as a commentator on the news and and yeah. giving columns in newspapers. And you think it, it's so it, it's so interesting to me that he he that there's never been a mere culpa from Alistair Campbell about the things that he got wrong or you know things around the Iraq War. He he sees himself as correct and he's just been allowed to become this sort of figure. And because he was on a certain side on the Brexit debate, right? There are a lot of people in the centre who now go, who really love Alistair Campbell. And it's so, in- it, it, the, the the laundering of his reputation is insane, but that happens in the British media all the time. And I can guarantee, I can guarantee now that Boris Johnson, when he ceases to be prime minister, will and will make his way back into the British media and it will be like it never happened almost, like he was on a, a you know, a sabbatical being prime minister. <laughs> Because in many ways he is. Yeah. As as you've said it, he is still very much a newspaper guy, a columnist guy, and who just happens to be prime minister because it's a job that he always wanted, but the position he always wanted. Yeah, I think culture. he hates it now. I think he's <laughs> really, I think he's quite bored of it, but yeah. Yeah, but I still think that he will not leave on his own. No, account. he'll try to stay as long as he can so that he doesn't, you know, he's nowhere near the, the, the any of the shorter lengths of time of being in in the job basically yeah and i also he's terrified of appearing like he's failed so yeah. he's going to stay in it as long as he can i wanted to to briefly return to something you mentioned because i wanted to get your take on this on this whole concept of being silenced that you see a lot on the media mm-hmm. these days a lot of the discussion about people who people are being silenced and yet you see them talking everywhere especially when they are right wing it's it tends to be the right wing that gets silenced these days not not the left wing and um well because the left never get to didn't get to talk in the first place well precisely and i wanted to get your take on this then this whole phenomenon of the great silenced it's a really good marketing it's a really good marketing tool i think but also it's it's super important for the the british right Actually, in in common with the American right, a lot of their fundamental, you know, way of looking at the world involves them being victims, even if they're in power. So, like, victimhood's really important to them. They they act like it's the le- the left is the are the ones who like to be the victims, but really the right love to be victims. And in this, and so the cancellation thing is part of that. Even if they have empowering government appointing you know, the major figures at state institutions, even if they control like the British Museum, you know, they've got George Osborne running the British Museum or whatever, they still have to have this notion that everywhere is run by by like this army of woke people and that everyone is being silenced. And it, and whenever you look into these stories, you always find, you find that, you know, the actual facts are not as presented. So you get things like the Kate Clancy story where like, you know, she uh, creates the issue in the first place by accusing Goodreads reviewers of being right ra- of, of uh, falsely accusing her of being racist. Then it turns out that the terms she herself called racist were in her book. But now we've got we're all the way down the line to her having these articles in papers about how sensitivity readers are censors and she's been silenced and whatever, even though she's, you know, got a got a, a publisher again. But it really works. It's it's a it's a 
you know, or, or Montford and the, the the Montford and Sons, you know, Winston Marshall, whose father is a hedge fund uh, guy, and uh, he, you know, backs unheard and all this kind of stuff. Him being silenced, you know, but now he's got his own podcast with unheard, and he's talking about how silenced he's been. It, 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 it's become a cliche now to say, "Oh, look at this person; that they're so silenced, and they're all over the the mainstream press." But it's a cliche. A lot of cliches are cliches because there's a ring of truth in them, and in this case, it's demonstrably true, isn't it? Yeah, and I so I speak with a lot of um, my friends and colleagues, and we all wish we were silenced like that because the amount of opportunities to speak you get once you're silenced is incomparable really with those of us who apparently have been accused of doing the silencing in the first place i wanted to also ask about funnily enough you mentioned unheard because unheard is relatively new in the media environment so what is unheard unheard is a uh it called it well it said yeah According to the Times, it's a website that defends free speech. That's what the the Times said yesterday. But uh, it is a right wing outlet that wants to pretend it's not a right wing outlet. It's 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 very fascinated by things like debates about whether trans people should be allowed to have rights. I I kind of don't want to call it the trans issue because that's what they like to call it, and I think that's that's their framing of it. It's stuff around you know it is stuff around council culture is stuff around people taking away our history all of this kind of stuff but framed in a way of like we're just about free speech man you know and a lot of people who who still claim to be of the left but are you know always always um published in right-wing publications but i think it's a pipeline i think it's a place for people to uh a lot of its stuff is now being syndicated into the telegraph and the times um it, again, it's a base. It's another means of reducing the size of of the the window of, of uh, acceptable opinion. Basically, we are in this mess, in this deep mess in the UK with the deeply unhealthy state of the British media. How do we get out of it? I, I think you know the only answer is is the only answer of, that I I have is 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 to try to make new outlets to have new uh, new places but it's difficult you know i think that there are some interesting there are some interesting new places but it comes back to what i was saying before which is like you know it's about it's about the about there are always power dynamics at work and that makes it hard and the one way that we, that it will improve is that rupert murdoch will die but then True. his but then his son Lachlan is is you know ideologically and uh, philosophically pretty much identical to him so you know, and and the other thing that people forget a lot of times is we talk about Murdoch, but we don't talk about Lord Rothermere enough. You know, very powerful, owns a huge swathe of the British media. Between him and Murdoch, they they you know have got the lion's share really, and that's a problem. Uh, how does it get fixed? It, it it's so hard, really. I mean, I know I write every day, or you know, most days. Recently, I've written every day because I broke my brain a bit, but that you know things need to be better i guess individuals ha- need to be better we, the, the other thing i would say you know is there there are every day in there are articles written and investigations done and things and work created by people in the british media that is good you know there are good journalists out there trying to do good work and investigations that come out of places like the sunday times did a very good investigation this weekend about the donor the conservative party donors and you know this secret group of of advisory panel of of major donors right 
that's really that's really valuable work. Unfortunately, it's within an architecture at that paper that I don't think gives enough attention to those investigations. And often it can feel like those investigations are kind of like a sop to say, hey, we do still do this stuff. But they don't stick with it. Right. When you watch the Daily Mail achieve anything right where it pushes things, it'll stay on the same thing five, ten days at a time. It'll just hammer away at it. Um and that's kind of the only way to get changes, you know, or to force things through is to is to hammer away like that. And unfortunately, I think that the we don't there's nothing there's nothing on the left that does that. And I I just uh, I think the only way that things can improve is 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 a is a wider amount of voices and the end of some of these dominant voices, the end of the Rodemir and Murdoch voices, and that's not going to happen, you know, for another lifetime probably. And what can we do as, as individuals living in this environment in order to try to get the actual news? Because it's so that's the thing that I always come back to. Getting the news, knowing what's happening is important, is crucial for living in a democracy. Yeah. But it is extremely hard to do. So what can we do to continue? I think partly, to you always, partly you have to triangulate things. You know, you need to look at as look at as many sources as you can cope with looking at. And, and take a skeptical view that is not a conspiratorial view, but a skeptical view and say, right, well, what, you know, what were they saying last week that they're not saying that they're saying now? It's tricky, though, because, you know, I do it all the time, but then it's because it's like I've made it into my job. Right. But <laughs> like day to day as a as a person who doesn't want to, you know, cause themselves a psychological break from reading too much media, it's very hard. I think if you can read any foreign press, that's useful. Like it. it they have their own problems, but looking at some foreign press can be helpful as well and, and seeing where they're, they're coming from. But it is about triangulating, I guess. And the other thing you can do, I think, is when you know stuff is completely untrue, is to challenge the narratives when you talk to people that you know, you know, and just say, well, you know, I, I've talked to people about about the way some of the issues we talked to talked about today. Some of those issues to say to people, yeah, no, the papers say that, but what about this? You know, you, mm. you can, we can spread media literacy by being friendly, but, you know, sceptical with people that we know and say, you know, family members and whatever and saying, yeah, okay, but why are they saying X or Y, you know? But it's not easy. <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, if we knew the answer <laughs> to then how to do it. But yeah, no, I say the same thing to my students that, Question everything, not in the conspiracy theory way, but in the way of question where you're getting the news, who's telling you what, and is there this particular angle serving a purpose? But it is very hard because it demands a lot out of you, right? You can't be the passive consumer of media no. if you're doing if you're going to do it that way. Yeah, exactly that, and and it's that's that is really hard, and it's very tiring, and and it's very difficult to determine and question your own biases as well because sometimes news just says things that you just think like there are you know i see stories sometimes i think yeah and then i think to myself okay but why do i just instantly agree with that what is it you know um that chat the challenge to to question yourself is hard i think yeah because again it's active. You can't just be a yeah. passive recipient. And it's like you said, it's exhausting. I do this sometimes where I have to take a break from the news completely. You know, yeah. I, I tell my family, if something happens that's important or relevant, let me know. But I'm not going to check anything yeah. for some time because it, it gets too much. Yeah. Yeah. And it's particularly with the news, I think it's it's about, I guess, 
the key the, the the sort of the the key thing when you're looking at, at the media in a country like the UK is you say well ultimately a lot of times what you're reading is the voice of capital and if you think oh well well what is the economic what are the what is the economic drive behind this or like what who who is going to lose or make money from this it turns it can make a lot of sense you know, you look around Brexit and how currency speculators did amazing out of out of leave. Right, there are often it's like you know, follow the money. Well, thank you so much, Mick. You've been so kind and patient, and this was great. Well, thank you for having me. That was Mick Wright. You can find him on Twitter at Broken Bottle Boy. You can also subscribe to his new letter on media criticism, Conquest of the Useless, on Substack. I highly recommend it, and the link is in the episode description. If you're enjoying Enemies of the People, please tell everyone you know. Rate and review us, download more episodes, subscribe and follow. Your support means the world to me. Remember, you can also support us over at Ko-fi and join our Frenemies book club by becoming a monthly supporter. You can find us on Twitter at EnemiesPod. I'm on Twitter at Maria W. Norris. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week for more Enemies of the People.